Well, good evening. As we continue to worship the great I am, if you would turn your Bible to Genesis chapter 8, making our way slowly but surely through Genesis. Thank you, Adam. Band, praise team, regen, for again leading us so faithfully in worship, preparing us for worship through the preaching of the word. It's been a great day. We had a baptism this morning. We had parents here visiting their college students, their children, and we are so grateful for what God is doing at Lakeview. If we could pray, we'll get into our passage. Lord God, thank you for this time together. We do believe corporate worship is a vital, vital means, a vital tool for our sanctification. We need it, and we pray that even though it's not done in the doing. It requires faith on our part. Uh, we pray that we would, by faith, steward this time. Uh, we're tired. It's been a long day. But Lord, I pray that our minds could be engaged. We are to love you with our, with our minds, and we pray that we would do that faithfully tonight as the word is expounded. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was six years old, my first grade football team had the opportunity to be in the Elba Homecoming Parade, which was a great honor. And so uh, we, we got on our float, and we really thought we were celebrities as we, we uh, took part in that big um, occasion. But when we arrived back after the parade, all of the, the, my teammates' parents were there to pick them up, but no one was there to pick me up. And I just started crying. That's what tough guys do, right? <laughs> and I just started crying and thought my parents had forgotten me and that they didn't love me anymore. And, and, and so I began my walk home, which was seven miles, seven miles out in the country. And I'm six years old at the time, five or six. And so I'm walking, and I've been walking probably a mile and a half, two miles, and our next door neighbor pulled up next to me and said, well, what are you doing walking down the road? And I said, my parents have forgotten me. Uh, <laughs> I've been in the homecoming uh, parade and, and they didn't pick me up. And so he took me home and before long, mom arrived and she had been caught up in the roadblocks. You know how much traffic there is in Elba. And uh, <laughs> so she had, she had gotten there too late. But I can't tell you the kind of comfort I had in knowing that actually my mom had remembered me. Um, it was horrifying the thought that my parents had forgotten me. I'd only known them six years, so I didn't know them that well, right? But I realized she loves me. She remembers me. Well, that must have been something the way Noah felt after months, in fact, five months of waiting in silence with his family and all of his favorite animals on the ark. And that brings us to the first part of uh, Genesis 8, Noah's waiting. Well, look with me in verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth. 
and the waters subsided. So of all the humans on the ark, only Noah is mentioned here in verse 1. And why is that? Well, he's like a new Adam. He's like the, the second Adam, the new Adam um, in the creation story. He's the representative at this point of all humanity. And we saw last time uh, they have to wait 150 days. We saw that at the end of chapter uh, 7 for God to send deliverance. But notice God remembers now, this is one of those passages where it attributes human-like qualities to God. Now, if you take that too literally, you could infer that God can forget. But that's not what this is saying at all. Uh, it, it's, it's attributing human-like qualities to God for the benefit of the reader. And so when it says that God remembers, it's not saying that God has forgotten it's more than recollecting, in fact. Uh, when God remembers, he acts. He always acts. And he acts on behalf of his people, believers, based on his promises to them. Okay? So, for example, when God remembered Abraham in Genesis 19, he saved Lot. He saved Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah. When God remembered Rachel, this barren woman in Genesis 30 conceived. But it wasn't until God remembered, right? When God remembered his covenant with Abraham in Exodus chapter 2, he raised up Moses to deliver his people out of Egyptian bondage. And so God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his concern. So later the psalmist will say in Psalm 912, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Or Psalm 136 verse 23, it is he who remembered us in our low estate. How about Mary's song in Luke chapter 1? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. In other words, the hope is not in just abstractly knowing that God remembers our circumstances, but in knowing that although we often have to wait on him, in fact, more times than not, we have to wait on the Lord, not because uh, he's late, it's because he's doing many things in the waiting. He's preparing us to receive what he has for us. So he requires us to wait. But in the waiting, we can know as believers, he has not and will not forget us. And he will act for our good and for his glory. Noah's no different than us and we are no different than Noah. And in the meantime, what is our job? Is to trust and obey. For there's no other way. We ought to write a song on that. Knowing that God will remember. Trust him. Obey him. Obey what he's already shown to you. And it's clear 
at this point that Moses, and we're going to see this, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but this is important for understanding this passage. He is going to appeal often to the creation story because this is a new creation. And so we're going to see often how he appeals back to Genesis chapter 1. And this passage is no uh, exception to that. Uh, this is seen, for instance, in verse 1 when it says, God made a wind blow over the earth. Now, what does that remind you of? Well, the same word in Hebrew is found in Genesis 1-2 in creation when it says, the spirit, the wind, same word. The spirit of God, the wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is new creation language. He's appealing back and saying, this is like the first creation, but this is new creation after judgment. But as we'll see in verses two and three, he continues that motif. Notice in verse two, the fountains of the deep. Now, again, that word deep is a word that shows up in, again, chapter one, verse two, as Moses is contemplating the parallels where it says that the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters Darkness was over the face of the deep. Same word here. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, five months, the waters had abated. So here in this recreation account, the waters that had been let loose in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, are now restrained and they subside. But again, this occurs because God remembered. That's our hope. And God will always remember his people. If we really believe that, I don't think we would ever struggle with anxiety. I don't think we would ever struggle with discouragement or our despair or discontentment if we truly believe what the word says here. God remembers. And so we see this here. He remembers and, and he acts and he is sovereign in his actions. Now I said last time that there are many pagan accounts of the flood narrative. Now why is that important? It's not that Moses is borrowing from those pagan narratives. No, he's taking them on. But it's important to remind us that it was, it was just known. Everyone, all nations, even the pagan nations recognized there had been an epic flood. It just drives home the veracity of that reality. But the gods of those stories are without fail always more like us than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for example, the Mesopotamian gods in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they were actually fearful during the flood. Here's what it says in the Epic of Gilgamesh. The gods were frightened by the deluge and shrinking back, they ascended to the heaven of Anu. The gods covered like, or cowered like dogs crouched against the outer wall. 
The gods all humbled sit and weep. But here, Moses is describing something completely different. He is describing not a God who cowers, not a God who is fearful. This is a God who is sovereign even over the flood waters. In fact, Moses is going to take great pains to even record the dates to demonstrate how meticulous the sovereignty of God is. Look with me in verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month. This sounds like someone who kept a journal, doesn't it? I really believe that this speaks to the, the historicity of this account. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, I want you to note this verb, rested. That is a play on words with the name Noah. Okay? You could, you could almost say it, it Noahed. All right? It Noahed. The, the ark Noahed on the mountains of Ararat. Noah, though, is the agent of rest. Now, this is thought to be a, a place called Urartu, a, a mountainous land region north of Mesopotamia, located in modern-day Armenia. Um, Mount Ararat, get this, is 17,000 feet tall. If you've ever been to Seattle, Washington, you, you fly into Seattle, and Mount Rainier looks like a snow cone peering through the clouds. Well, Mount Rainier is only 14,000 feet high. Mount Ararat is 17,000, 3,000 feet higher than, than Mount Rainier. But here's what I think is important. Moses, at this moment, likely would not have understood how strategically central Mount Ararat would, would be um, for reproducing the earth, for, for repopulating the earth. And I think the, the implications of this are so comforting for us I mean, Moses has been through the fire. He's been through a, child, a, a, a trial, through tribulations. God remembers him, and then God places him in what appears to be a random place on Mount Ararat. There was nothing random about it. It was the most strategic place for him to begin repopulating the earth, which is the mandate that takes us back to Genesis 1. And that reminds us that when we go through the trials as God's people, and it feels like it's, we sense that God has forgotten us. He has not forgotten us. But he does put us through waiting periods. But then he remembers. And when he remembers, we can rest that what he's doing is birthed by infinite wisdom and goodness and, and love and benevolence and zeal for his glory and love for his image bearers. Well, Moses is writing this, but Noah, at this point, likely has no clue as to how strategic this is. But the ark sits here for about two and a half more months. Well, notice in verse 5, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. And so, uh, in verse 4, it's the 7th month, and now it's the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. That's remarkable because Mount Ararat is 17,000 feet high. And so at this point, until you see the waters abate, even a 17,000 foot mountain can't be seen, the top of it. 
It has been, you, you saw what a hurricane did in Florida just in a very brief period, okay? But that even pales a comparison to what we see here in this uh, flood narrative. But um, the following section focuses, though, on the patience of, of, of Noah as he, as he waits for God. And that brings us to the second part of this passage. We've seen his waiting, and now we see... His testing, not that he hasn't already been tested, but he is continuing to be tested. Notice in verse 6, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. Now, we don't know where that window is. Uh, when it was constructed, we're not told where the window is. It, it's irrelevant to uh, the, the understanding of the passage. But he opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Now, Moses doesn't tell us the significance of the raven. For one, it was an unclean animal, and so it would have been more expendable. But scholars believe there's probably a more practical reason uh, that he sends out a raven. A raven is a stronger bird, and the raven... Um, can remain in flight longer, and he can, derive, he can, he can draw food from, from sources that a lot of other uh, clean animals will not draw from, uh, dead carcasses and, and, and things like that. So it's probably a practical reason why he, he sent out the raven as the more expendable um, bird. But notice in verse 8, then he sent forth a dove from him, and the, the, uh, the dove being an, a clean animal and very symbolic, we'll look at that in a moment, to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. So the dove is an altogether different kind of bird than the raven. Uh, this is new creation imagery. Now, why don't I say that? Well, let me give you one example. Back in, uh, we, we remember in Luke 3 when the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus uh, at his baptism, and it says that he came on him like a dove. And in the sacred writings of Judaism, there's a place, an actual place, where the Holy Spirit is likened to a dove. And I think that's probably where uh, Luke is getting that imagery. The Aramaic translation of the Old Testament, it's called the Targums, the Targums, um, that is the Aramaic translation of the Old Testament. Listen to how it translates Genesis 1-2. The Holy Spirit, um, the Spirit of God, fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove, and God spoke, let there be light. And, and so um, the Spirit comes on Jesus like a dove. And just like the, the first creation, the, 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 the spirit is there like a dove. We have on Jesus, the spirit is like a dove. And so the dove is symbolic of new hope, new creation. Now notice in verse 9, but the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole ground. 
So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again, he sent forth the dove out of the ark. Verse 11, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Now that term, fleshly plucked, that clearly means new growth from an olive tree. And olive trees are a symbol of shalom in, in the Old Testament. Let me just offer you one verse, Hosea 14, 6. So this is shalom restored in a sense, represented by this olive leaf, new creation. Well, notice in verse 12. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. The dove not returning means that the dove has landed. New creation. Verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. So based on the earlier chronology of the text, uh, chapter 7, verses 6 and 11, they've been in the ark over a year at this point. Can't even imagine the kind of test uh, that they would have endured. Uh, imagine just being in a hotel for a weekend with your family. Uh, they've been in a, uh, an ark for over a year with, with all of their animals in tow. They, they had entered the, the boat, the ark, in Noah's 600th year of life on the 17th day of the second month. And here, the earth is dry and ready for habitation in Noah's 601st year of life on the 27th day of the second month. And again, this verb dried out in verse 14. Notice again, the earth had dried out. Uh, that appears, that verb appears for the first time in Genesis 1, verse 9, where it says, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And so he's, Moses is clearly making connection with Genesis 1, where you have the creation, the dry land appearing in the creation, where he separates the waters from the earth. And here, the dry land has appeared once again, but in a post-flood world. Again, it's intended to communicate recreation, new creation, with a new Adam taking dominion. And that brings us to the final part of our passage, this new Adam, Noah's obedience, unlike the first Adam. Verse 15 then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every little living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So this is the first time God has spoken to Noah. All since uh, probably uh, chapter 7, verse 16. And so this, it has been many, many days where God is silent. God is silent. Well, why is he silent? He hasn't forgotten Noah. He, he, he's preparing Noah. He's growing Noah. He's maturing Noah. And here he breaks the silence. But again, it's the language of creation. Notice, be fruitful, multiply on the earth. That is the original mandate. Genesis chapter 1 in, in God's creation. But notice verse 18. So Noah went out. So this is a new humanity coming out of judgment. Having judgment satisfied by God, they are coming out into a new creation. This is the man of rest and leading a people into this rest. It's preparing us for something greater. And Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Again, where have you heard this language? Genesis chapter 1. It's as if God has cleansed the world by these waters of judgment. And now a new creation is there. Noah is a new Adam entering into his new world, which God has cleansed by judgment. There will be another Adam who comes and who will enter into a new world by resurrection. Verse 20. Then Noah built an ark, an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So this is the first time that the word altar is used in the Bible. Now, we've seen so many firsts, haven't we, in the book of Genesis. And the word altar in Hebrew is the word for slaughter. So we talk about altar calls, well, <laughs> I don't think it would sound good, slaughter calls, right? Um, the word for altar is the word for slaughter. Because altar, the altar was where God met with sinful man. But it required a sacrifice. It required atonement. And so here is the first time we see that word. And we, we've been told stories about sacrifices in, in, in Genesis chapter 4, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, but, but no altar is mentioned there. And again, another thing I think to, that's noteworthy about this passage is the word here for, for sacrifice. In verse 20, um, some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings. Um, the word there for offerings, um, burnt offering, it is used in what most scholars believe to be the oldest book of the Bible, which is the book of Job. And in the book of Job, that very term is used. So even earlier than this book being written, 
Job was written, and in Job chapter 1, verse 5, we see that Job offered a burnt offering to the Lord as atonement for sin. And so Noah's offering here is, a, is an offering of sacrifice to satisfy God's judgment on behalf of this post-flood humanity. And so as Job mediated for his family through sacrifice, Noah was a priest for the post-fall world. In fact, Leviticus 1, uh, it's the same word that's used, says that these burnt offerings would be totally consumed on the altar. Totally consumed. Some sacrifices you could, you would offer sacrifice and you could eat the, the meat. But these burnt offerings were totally consumed. And note God's response to that, that sacrifice. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, the Lord is speaking to himself here. You know why? Not because he's crazy, but because he's triune. He says in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. I want you to notice real quickly, though, uh, the intention of Man's heart is evil from his youth. Um, we see here the early manifestation of depravity. Um, in other words, the depravity that we read about in chapter 6, verse 5, isn't restricted to the situation in the pre-flood world. Even after, even after the flood, after the judgment, with this new humanity who comes out of the instrument of judgment, the ark, or the instrument of salvation, rather, Humanity is still sinful from its youth. So sin has not been resolved at this point. But what I want you to note here, um, that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And in response, it's a gracious response, um, he, he makes a promise. And here's the promise, I will never again Strike down every living creature as I have done. He's not going to do it, in other words, by the flood. And so even though Noah and even though his family, the new humanity, they are still sinners, God will not curse the ground in this way any further. Now, what's a little confusing here is that in chapter 6, verse 7, it says that God was going to curse and judge humanity because every intent of their heart is evil continually. But here it says he is not going to curse the ground because every intent of the thought of their hearts is evil. So what gives? Well, it means in light of man's inherent sin. And sin has not been dealt with by the flood. Sin is still very present. Uh, it is still universal in humanity. 
All of us have the same sin nature. There's not an ethnicity that's more sinful than another ethnicity. There's not a gender that's more sinful than another gender. There's not a nationality that is more sinful than another nationality. We all have the same sin problem. We all are under this, have the same predicament, okay? But he says, in light of that, I'm not going to judge the world in this way again. So what, is, what gives? Why is God going to relent? It's clear. Because of the atoning sacrifice offered up by Noah. He offered up this sacrifice, and God, again, note the language, God, it was a sweet-smelling aroma, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, and in light of that, I will never again curse the ground because of man. In other words, there's not gonna be another, another universal flood because of the all-sufficient work of Noah, if you will. And then verse 22 continues that assurance. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so Moses is telling us that the seasons, and we are now into fall season. Praise God for that. Um, they, if you, if you read them biblically, are a story of God's grace and renewal. Uh, the dark and difficult days of winter issue into the spring. And the hot and humid days of summer issue into the refreshing Temperatures of the fall. So the regular changes in the seasons remind us of God's commitment to the earth. That it will never be destroyed by flood again. And so Noah's offering of atonement ensured that the world would never be rocked with the worldwide calamity like that again. That's why I'm not concerned about global warming. That's not to say we don't steward the earth as God's vice regents, but based on the promise made to Noah, I am not concerned with it. That's another issue. But what his sacrifice could not see and what it could not do was save humanity from their sins. We're going to see that in chapter 9. Noah is not the ultimate savior. He is not the true and faithful rest giver because Noah himself will need a savior. And so um, the judgment of the flood only foreshadowed was a weak shadow of the, the greater judgment to come. It would take one greater than Noah. Uh, just read John, Genesis 9, and we'll get to that next Sunday night, to see that Noah needs a Savior himself. And so Noah's offering satisfies God's wrath in that moment so that God would say, I'll never judge the earth by a flood again. But as we'll read Genesis, more animals will have to be sacrificed. 
As we read Genesis, we will see that mankind's sin has not been subjected. Mankind's sin has not been, been brought underneath the feet of, of Yahweh. In fact, Hebrews 10, I think, is pondering that very point when he says, the writer, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See what he's saying? He's saying that these animals that were sacrificed, they temporarily satisfy God's wrath, but they could not ultimately save them from their sins. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, they're a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The point being, Noah's sacrifice satisfied God in the sense that he would not judge the earth by flood again. But that sacrifice could not take away our sins. We need one greater. Noah need one, needs one greater. And the writer of Hebrews will give us that one who is greater. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The greater Noah, having finished the work. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so the dove's olive leaf points us to the new creation ushered in by our Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Noah, whose once for all sacrifice and his resurrection signaled that God could say once again, it is all very good. It is all very good. And if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creation. It's like we are coming out of that instrument of salvation, the ark. But this ark is a person, the son of God. And we come out as new creations in him. And that's why we gather to celebrate that. But also know that uh, some of you here have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus. You have not repented of your sins. So as Adam and the um, musicians come forward, we're going to have our pastors here at the end. I made this point last time. But the reality is, Scripture endorses, Scripture encourages its preachers to preach the promise of judgment. It is a means by which sinners are awakened from their spiritual slumbers. And so we have seen the judgment of the flood. It's a precursor, but it pales a comparison to a greater judgment to come that will fall on all humanity who do not have a Savior. Do not delay. Repent of your sins and trust in this one who didn't come out of an ark. He came out of a grave. He came out of the grave as the first man of the new creation. The resurrection was the first event of the new creation. And the Bible says if you will trust in him, if you will repent of your sins and trust in this Christ who offers you rest, you will be made new. Your sins will be forgiven. He actually takes care of our sins. Noah couldn't do that. 
But Jesus does if you will trust in him. Won't you respond to that gospel call as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.